Lots of Christmas songs have a catchy, a snappy tune on the front end, but as you actually think about them a little bit more, maybe they're not as joyful as you might would have originally anticipated them to be. For instance, Santa Claus is coming to town. You better not cry. Strike one for maybe a few of us. You better not pout. And adults, let's be honest, there's adult ways of pouting. We know that, right? So I don't know about that so far. And then he's making a list. That's enough to make somebody neurotic. I got someone making a list about my life. He's making a list, and he's not only checking it once, but he's checking it twice. My goodness. And he knows whether we've been, what, naughty or nice, good or bad. Now, anybody here been 100% good and nice this last week, for instance? Or how about this morning? Or how about on the way to church? And then you have those words of doom. You better watch out. You could kind of read it that way, right? Maybe not as joyful as you would think. Or switching gears. In 1943, Bing Crosby wrote a song called, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and then there's a line, at least in my dreams. And it was written for the soldiers and Marines and sailors fighting overseas during World War II. And when you think about it, it's a little bit sad because, well, they weren't home for Christmas, and the reality is many would never come home for Christmas, and families were eternally broken up because people being killed in action. Switching gears again, the Jackson 5 in 1970 did a take on, I think it is, I Caught Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, right? You know that song? And you, there's this line, if only daddy knew, right? Then it would be kind of a sad Christmas. Only Susan told me, do you know in the song, it's actually daddy dressed up as Santa Claus. Did you know that? I didn't know that, okay? So it would only be sad for the child with a mistaken identity of your father. Well, a lot of Christmas songs talk about joy, but maybe they're not quite as joyful as you would think they would be. We are in a series, a short four-part Christmas series called The Songs of Christmas. And we are looking at four actual Christmas songs from the Bible. Last week, we jumped forward to Luke chapter 2, and we looked at the angel's song of peace. If you missed that, I would encourage you to, to listen to that, because those are such powerful words from Scripture on the kind of peace that we can have in a worry, anxiety, conflict-ridden culture. Today, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see Mary's song of joy. I just read it. There's a fancy name for it. Anybody know what that fancy name is? The Magnificent, if that's the right way to say it in Latin, I'm not sure. Um, that is from the Latin translation of Mary's song from the word magnify or magnificat. Now, I just want you to look at something real quick before we get out of the starting blocks to see something that's going on. In verse 46 and 47, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, that's the word magnificat in Latin, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And there's something pretty cool going on there that I want us to come back to. While this is written in Greek, he, um, Mary is using kind of Hebrew poetic parallelism. 
And in poetic parallelism, the first line in that parallel and the second line are getting at the same thing only from two different directions. Are you with me? So line one, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, which means makes great or shows great, or we might say glorifies, right? My soul glorifies the Lord. Line two, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, or we might say enjoys God my Savior. Here's the point. Glorifying God and enjoying God aren't two different things. They're actually intrinsically connected and have something very weighty to say about how we think about Christianity if we're an unbeliever and how, what it means for our walk if we are a Christian. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that, but for now, I want to ask the question, what is joy? And I'm sure we would have as many definitions as there are people here. There's no one fixed, firm definition. I think there's some outlines in Scripture. But let me begin by saying what joy is not. Joy is not merely happiness from what's happening in your life or circumstances, okay? Now, that's not bad, right? I mean, we ought to feel happy about things in life, right? So that's not bad. In fact, as Christians, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for the good things that happen in our life and trust him in the bad things, right? And in fact, I think for a Christian, things that happen in our life can actually cause us to experience more of the joy of the Lord, and I'll get to that. But the reality is, even non-Christians experience that kind of happiness, right? So we're talking about something a little bit deeper than that, merely uh, a feeling that is rooted in something good that happens in your life. Here's another thing it's not, because sometimes Christians play the pretend plastic game really well, and it's not a good thing. Biblical joy is not faking it when things aren't going well in your life. You understand the Bible actually reflects Christians showing all kinds of emotions, right? Lament, sorrow, sadness, grief, anger, and all that, legitimately. So it's not, you know, hey, how's your, how you doing? Well, just lost my dog, my house, sounds like a country song, you know, uh, my spouse and my job, but praise God, I'm doing great. That's not what we're talking about. So what is biblical joy? Biblical joy, here's my definition, is a deep sense of well-being, a deep sense of well-being in your soul rooted in the fact that God is good, the fact that God is gracious, and the fact that God is glorious, and he's all those things for me in both good times and bad times. That's my, what would your run at it be? Let me give that to you again. It's a deep sense of well-being in my soul that God is good, gracious, and glorious and for me in both good times and bad times. Now, I think the reality is just as peace is not widely experienced, even by Christians, I don't think that joy is perhaps as widely experienced as well by Christians. And in its place, I'm not going to bore you. Last week, remember, I gave you a bunch of statistics won't do that this week. I just want to say, I believe that 
a sizable number of people sort of flounder about in a low-grade sea of sadness or even one of outright despair. That a sizable amount of people sort of flounder about in the bay of bitterness because of things that have happened to them in life. That a sizable amount of people, even Christians, flounder about in an ocean of negativity. And I could go on and on and on. And here's how they survive. Here's how they survive. They dog paddle from one island of happiness to the next. The weekend's coming. I mean, that's what the world talks about. The weekend's coming, right? That, that, that's my life buoy, the weekend. Or I'm going to be able to get a drink tonight. That's, that's my island. Or this job promotion. Or the holidays. Or my kids coming home. Or my kids leaving. Whatever the case may be. People swim from one island of happiness to another, but basically live in a sea of melancholy. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical joy, a deep sense of well-being rooted in who God is. He's good, gracious, and glorious and for me all the time, even when I can't see it or feel it. You might be here, though, and you might say, man, life has thrown me some real curveballs. And I don't believe there's any way that I could experience the kind of joy you're describing. And I would say, if that's you, and I want to say this graciously, because we've all been there, I think, we ought to have the integrity to at least say, God, you're a liar. Because in tons of places, the scripture holds out this joy is the inheritance of a believer, not just in eternity, but even now. Not saying you're not going to lament. Not saying there's not going to be anger and sorrow and all that, but that is, that is our birthright here in the gritty now and now. Remember the book we gave you guys, uh, everybody got, and we actually we're going to have another gift book, a great one called Sunday Matters uh, in a couple weeks for, for church members. But a couple years ago, we gave you the book, The Insanity of God. You remember that? What was that about? The persecuted church, Right? And these brothers and sisters, how are they being treated? You remember, did you read this book? I mean, they're being tortured, some of them executed, ripped away from their loved ones, from family members, from their churches, from their communities. And yet, you read this book, and so many of them manifest a deep sense of well-being, do they not, in their soul, Rooted in the fact that God is good and gracious and glorious in both good times and bad, and he's for them, even as they are being martyred. So yeah, I think this is our birthright. And if you're a believer who has that mindset, I'm not sure, you don't want to be a liar, do you? So put on a seatbelt, and we're going to take a quick ride through the Magnificat. We're going to look at Mary's song of joy. And we're going to see three things that pave the pathway to joy for every believer here. And if you're not a believer yet, there's going to be plenty of on-ramps for you to to come to Christ, even as I share God's Word. Y'all with me? So here are the three dynamics. We're going to look at trust. We're going to look at perspective. And we're going to look at hunger. Trust, perspective, and hunger. There are certain things, obviously, with the life of Mary that will not be replicated, right? 
the virgin birth, but there are certain things that are very informative for us as we jump into the inheritance which is ours, which is joy in the Lord. So here we go. Trust, number one. What do I mean by trust, though? I mean a living, active, right here, right now, not 17 years ago when I accepted Christ, but a living, active, right here and now dependence on God and his word. And Mary, will see, actually manifests this trust even before she breaks out in song. It begins earlier in the chapter when Mary is told by an angel that though she has never slept with Joseph or any other man, for that matter, she is going to give birth through a supernatural conception. And she's going to give birth to one who is the Son of God. And he will be called Jesus, which means God saves. Now, Notice how Mary responds. She doesn't say, try telling my dad that one, angel. Look at what she says in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this, how will this be since I am a virgin? Again, she's a virgin. She's never been with a man. She has doubts, doesn't she? Doesn't Mary have doubts right there? Yeah, she does. And often, by the way, that's where real faith begins with doubts. Did you know that? Real faith often begins with doubts. That is, if you're really looking for answers. Some people ask a lot of questions of the Christian faith, not because they're inquiring for truth or trying to reject that truth. I don't know what your heart is, but if you have doubts, that's legitimate. There are real answers to your real questions. Look what the angel says to her. The angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, Luke 1, 35. Mary gets her answer. And though she, let me ask you this. Do you think Mary has maybe one or two or a thousand or so more questions about what's going on? Yes or no? What do you think? Probably a whole lot more questions, right? Not just that one. But though Mary still has a lot of questions, she shows us what real faith is. Real faith is not having all your questions answered, but it's simply taking God at his word. The reality is if we could have all our questions answered, we have a head the size of the globe to contain all the answers and to process all that truth, right? And we would be God. But the Trinity is not taking additions, okay? And so real faith is not having all your questions answered, but is taking God at his word for what he plainly reveals. The Bible talks about 2 Timothy 3, 7, people who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. You gotta be careful about that. Well, she goes to visit, later in the chapter, her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth twice tells her she's blessed. She says, you are blessed among women, and you are blessed for believing. She's called blessed. Blessed Mary. You've heard that expression right before, haven't you? Out of that, she breaks into this beautiful song called the Magnificat. Now, unfortunately, 
there are unbiblical traditions that super exalt Mary, super elevate Mary, way beyond what Scripture does. What are some ways that Mary is described in certain traditions? Sometimes she's called the queen of heaven. You ever heard that? The tradition I grew up in, that was the case. She's called sometimes co-redemptrix or co-redeemer. Co-mediatrix or co-mediator. But do you know Mary thinks of herself nothing at all like that? You won't find that in Scripture. Look at what Mary says. She readily, readily proclaims, we read it already, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She doesn't say, my spirit rejoices in God, my partner, in saving other people, which is what that false theology says. Rather, Mary simply says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary is blessed, yes, not because she helped save lost humanity, but because God in his mercy and grace chose to use her to be the vessel through which he would launch his saving mission to save the people for his name, for his glory. And we do not honor her when we say more than that. Does she know everything she needs to know about Jesus? Does she know enough to be saved? Yes. She does not know everything, but she knew she needed a Savior, and she trusted in him. She's, I mean, the the Savior is inside her womb, and yet she's trusting in him to be the one who would take her hit on the cross. So saving faith is this. Saving faith is saying, I cannot save myself through any kind of religion. The only thing that I bring to salvation is the sin that required me being saved from. Ephesians 2.89 says, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of what family? Not of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. I think of that verse in Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And though this, this, this young girl, young woman, I should say, she's a young woman, right? She's very young. She's got her, her mind, her world is being turned upside down. She's got a lot of questions, but she has one answer. Jesus Christ is her Savior, and that creates joy in her, does it not? She rejoices about this matter. Now, if Hebrew says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, I think it's not a far stretch to say without faith, it's impossible to take pleasure in God. Again, faith today, not 17 years ago, but faith today. See, instead of, brother and sister, in the gritty stuff of life where you have things and questions that are unanswered, instead of saying, well, I know this, I don't know really what's going on right now, and I don't even like what's going on perhaps, But I know this. I know that God is good and gracious and glorious and for me in both good times and bad times. And that's a stabilizing force that allows you even in the midst of lament, even in the midst of grief and anger, to also have that deep sense of well-being in your soul. 
But when you stop trusting the Lord in that kind of way, here's what we are left with. We're left floundering in a sea of subjectivity. A prisoner to our own fallen thoughts and interpretations about what's going on in our life. Helpless victims to our circumstances, and there will be no joy in that. And we've all been in seasons like that, have we not? We've been functionally disconnected from faith in the Lord. I'm not saying you weren't saved, you don't lose your salvation if you're truly a Christian, but you functionally start living like a worldling and not a Christian. See, this is not just about having faith for salvation. She does, God my Savior. This is also having faith that God has a sovereign plan for my life. And a lot of ups and downs, a lot of twists and turns, but he is, in fact, large and in charge and good and kind and gracious and merciful. Now, something else before we get to the perspective part. Something else to see in this matter of trust. What does real trust in God look like? Like if it was a cake, what would be some of the ingredients of trust? And I think a big ingredient would be that of humility. Humility is a big part of trust. A lot of people don't trust in the Lord because they're actually not humble. And apart from the grace of God, none of us are. Here's what she does not do. Yes, she says, I know I'm not co-redemptrix. But she doesn't even snap her suspenders and say, hey, God must have thought I was really special. Better than sliced bread. He chose me to bring his son into the world. There's no humble brag by her, is there? Humble brag, hashtag, blessed to be Jesus' mom, just so you all know. There's no actual even mention of the birth of Jesus in this song. She's just giving a response to it. There's no humble, oh, this morning sickness is getting to me so bad. Sigh, but it'll be worth it for the sins of the world. Y'all pray for me, would you? There's none of that. Instead, she simply says, verse 48, for he has looked upon what? The humblest state of his servant. And by the way, she's not saying, oh, look at me, I'm so humble. The word is often translated lowly. This is a woman who not only is lowly in social position, and she was, (coughs) she's lowly in posture of heart, is she not? She's a humble person. I think one of the evidences that we have real trust in the Lord is, again, that ingredient of humility. Not, well, I deserve this, which you could have said, right? Or, this is what we do a lot when things aren't good, well, I don't deserve this, right? Don't we say that? Humility realizes just how much you've been blessed. Just how much you've been blessed. Look at what she says, latter part of verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me what? Blessed. And we rightly call her blessed because she was blessed. But you know what? If we've trusted in Christ, we are blessed too. I want to remind you of what I said from Ephesians 1 last week. If you have turned from your sins and entrusted in Christ, this is what God says about you. You're blessed. He says you were chosen. You were predestined. You were adopted. You're accepted in the beloved. 
you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're sealed, you're made alive with Christ. In fact, you're seated with Christ right now in the heavenlies, in the heavenlies with this mystical union. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so I close this first point by saying it is easy to take our eyes off how much we've been blessed, isn't it? Isn't it? For all of us, we need to remind each other of how much we've been blessed. Humble faith remembers in those times how much we've been blessed, and that begins to create fresh ways of joy. So number one, pathway to joy is what? Trust. Not just yesterday, but when? Right now. Second of all, perspective. Perspective. And what I mean by perspective here is Mary, through the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God, has a right understanding of reality. What I mean is this. In verses 51 through 53, she uses what is called a prophetic past tense. Prophetic past tense. Sometimes Scripture speaks of things that though they're not yet yet, completely done, the scripture speaks of them as fully and finally done because it will irrefutably actually come to pass and they will be done. Does that make sense? Am I saying that clearly? For instance, Romans chapter eight, he uses the prophetic past tense, these, these golden links in our salvation. Moreover, those whom he did predestinate, them he also called, past tense. Now think about it. Not everybody who's been predestinated has been called yet because some predestinated people have not yet been born, right? And yet he speaks about it in the past tense. It's so sure it will happen. Moreover, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, past tense, what? Glorified. That ain't us yet, is it? Backaches, battles with sin and everything else. We are waiting our glorification, right? And yet, Sister, brother, it is so assuredly going to come to pass based on the work of Christ. He can say in past tense, you have been glorified. In other words, Mary is speaking about a great reversal to come. Will you say that with me? A great reversal. On one hand, verse 51, this is what's going to happen, and she speaks about it in past tense because it will happen. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, verse 51. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Do you see that? Then, I'm, okay, who got them? I watch again. All right, just like last week. Who got it to again? All right, all right. I'm just gonna stomp it. All right. On the other hand, he's exalted those of humble estate. You see that verse 52. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Now, a great reversal, do you see that? A flipping. Now, certainly there are partial fulfillments in this life, but Mary is pointing to a time when the script will be fully and finally flipped forever. And the Bible gives us a whole host of illustrations to remind us quite viscerally of this. Do you remember in the book of Esther, a guy named Haman? Bad guy, right? Wanted to kill all the Jews. And the king says to Haman, hey, Haman, what should the king do for the man he wants to honor? 
Haman says, oh, I know, thinking, about, thinking that the king's talking about him. Remember that? He says, this is what you ought to do. Put a royal crown on his head, royal robe on his back, put him on a royal horse, and give him a royal parade. And the king says, great, I'll do that. Do that for Mordecai. He's like, oh, right? It's even more reversed. <coughs> Haman has some gallows built upon which he aims to have Mordecai executed. Who ends up losing their neck on that gallows? Haman. He goes from the anticipation of celebration all the way to the experience of condemnation. Take Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Man, peacocks out on the porch of his palace. He says, look, look at these grounds that I have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my name. Bam! You remember what happens to him? He gets struck down. He was the first furry ever. I, literally, he experienced boanthropy, which is when a person acts like an animal. He didn't get that, but it's true. He thought he was a cow for seven years. Until he comes to his right, to his mind, the Lord snaps him back to his senses, and he says, surely I, am, I know that the Most High is able to humble the proud. And by the way, that's the mercy of God in your life when he, when he gives you a humbling here instead of an eternal humbling there. Don't want that. One other one on the negative side. Herod Agrippa, Acts chapter 12. Herod is out there uh, at the king's porch receiving all kind of lackey-ish praise from from, from people uh, that were there, one, one lackey says, surely this is the voice of God and not of a man. You remember what happens? Because Herod did not correct that man and give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down immediately. He was filled with worms and he dies. See, the Bible warns us that there's great reversals coming. Now, the, the, the positive ones, remember Lazarus. Do you remember him? Lazarus was a poor, poor man, ate scraps off the table, had sores on him that a dog would lick as he was at the rich man's gate. He dies. The rich man dies. Remember what happens there? The rich man who experienced everything he wanted in life is begging for one drop of water to cool his tongue in the heat of hell. And Lazarus is in paradise, in the glory of God's presence. How about Mary? Isn't there a great reversal going on here? Mary, again, is what, 14, 15, a peasant girl, low economic status, looked down on in society, and she gives birth to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. What a reversal. But the biggest reversal I think of is the King of Glory himself. The Son of God he existed in eternity in joyful communication and love, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet in the fullness of time, he came forth through the womb of Mary. He lived, he was born into obscurity. He wasn't born into some of the high and mighty wealthy clans. No, this poor family, his dad, a working man, his legal father, a working man, Joseph. And then you know about his mother. I've described her. Finally gets public with his ministry about age 30. And yeah, people begin to follow him, actually in droves, until the goodies stop coming. Do you remember that? And then people stop, start falling back, and people start getting negative towards him. They reject him. 
They mock him. They try and trap him. They falsely accuse him. They put him through some mock trials. He's beaten. He's spit upon. He's slapped. He's tortured. And he's crucified. And yet, three days later, he broke the seal on the tomb. We sang about it. He's exalted in power and coming in glory. That is a reversal. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was, he, was before him, he despised the cross. Looking, he despised the shame as he looked forward to what this would accomplish. Now, I want to bring the second point to a close by, by maybe asking some of you who have open Bibles to turn to Psalm 73. Because is it not true in life we get lost in the weeds and we, we don't really think about the great reversal? You ever, you ever, do you ever look at people and say, they're not even believers and they seem to be doing so much better than me? Huh? Psalm 73 is the record of Asaph, who was a believer, but he's bitter and jaded because he's taken his eyes off a, a biblical perspective. He sees people who don't even love God, they don't even follow God, not even doing right, prospering. They're doing good. And Asaph, he's trying to do good, but he's experiencing bad. Do you remember that? And look at what he says. Look at what he says right here. He says, he says, and we, we get like this. He's having a pity party, the pouting part. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I'm trying to live for God, and this is what I get. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He revisited the truth of God. And then he gets this perspective. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Verse 21 when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You ever been like a beast towards God, thinking that way? And then he affirms this truth. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, big picture, you will receive me to glory. And then these famous words, who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing else on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fill, but God is the strength in my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, it is good for me to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge and I may tell of all your works. Now, I don't have time to, much time to spend there, no more time to spend time there, but I would say marinate in Psalm 73 if you're, if you're fighting, fighting that. That gives you a right perspective. See, here's, here's the second point. First point, you want to have joy, you got to trust God, not just for salvation, but in the sovereign ups and downs of your life, okay? Number two, you need to have a perspective. You need to see the big picture, that there is a great reversal coming, and you can have joy. So can you have joy in the fact that the best is yet to come? Can you? Of course you can see how this is inseparably linked to faith, because you have to believe that then, right? You gotta believe what he says about the best is yet to come. And you gotta bank everything on it. Now I close this point with this quote by Scott Hubbard. This is what he says. Now remember, Christian, you are going to heaven. 
Very soon, even any moment, you will be hastened away from all you've known here to take, I love this, an eternal holiday. You will wake up to find your lungs filled with the air of a better country. Your sorrows and sighs will be out of sight, Isaiah 51.11. You will see Jesus face to face, Philippians 1.23. And with him you will finally and fully be home forever, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And now, imagine what life might be like if as we step back into the task of today and its burdens, we kept one eye upward. How might today be different if we brought the hope of heaven into the stuff of earth? If thoughts of above adorned our waking hours, we might then discover how much of our happiness rests on heavenly mindedness. And we might strive to have it said of us as it was said of a saint of old, quote, of that good man, let this high praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. So number two, a perspective of the great reversal to come. Now finally, and I'll end quickly with point three, hunger. Hunger, which you're probably feeling about right now, I'm guessing. We saw in these uh, prophetic past tenses, she talked about the um, filling the hungry with good things. And certainly there are physical uh, fulfillments of that. I think the poor among us know a bit more what it means to live daily depending on God for your daily bread. But Mary ultimately is pointing towards a deeper hunger. And I think it's something that she exemplified as a young woman of God. Next chapter, we'll see that after she gets some more truth, what does the Bible say she did in her heart? Anybody remember that? She hid and treasured these things in our heart. That's what hunger does, right? It treasures the things of God. It, it contemplates the things of God. She does that. This is the kind of hunger exemplified by the psalm of Psalms 42, verses 1 and following. As a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul thirsts after you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before God? Now, can you say that is what you pant for. Or can you say what the psalmist says in Psalm 63? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My, my, my soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. Can you say because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. Can you say, can you say, I will bless you all the days of my life and, and lift up my hands to you? Can you say that? Can you say, my soul will be satisfied with you as with rich and fat food? And my mouth will praise you with joyful, joyful lips. When I meditate about you on my bed and when I think about you in the night watch, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Can you say, as we saw with the parable of the great treasure a few weeks ago, I am willing to sell everything, everything so I can buy this treasure in this future. Remember that. Now, here's the truth. Here's the truth of all of us, I would imagine. Most all of us. Does not a hunger for and pursuit of God wane, shrink, shrivel, 
often, does it not? It shrinks, it shrivels. We don't really pursue God. We don't really get after him. We don't really even worship him. Man, even when we finish here, you might just check out instead of really worship. And we then think that the way to correct that, here's what I need to do. Here's what I need to do. I need to stop thinking about my own pleasure and joy and satisfaction so much. I need to start serving God. That will fix it. But according to C.S. Lewis, the reason we're in that predicament is because we actually don't think about our joy and pleasure and satisfaction enough, and we're far too easily satisfied. Truth is, in those days, in those seasons when you really got after God, it's because, it wasn't because, well, I guess I need to serve God. You did it because you thought he was the best thing, right? You were excited about him. You were satisfied in him. Now, here's the famous quote, which most of you have heard by Lewis, but let me read it. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and he's not against those things. He's against those things being our gods. When infinite joy is offered us, and you, that, that memorable analogy, right? Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And that's from his book, The Weight of Glory. In another place, he says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you got to get in the water. So what if we were really hit, really hit? I want to be satisfied by God like I have been in the past. Or what if I was hit by this thought, I want to be satisfied by God in a way that I never have. And Mary shows me it is possible. And what if he took some tangible steps to stand near the fire and to get in the water? And you don't need me to, I don't think you need me to tell you what those are. I don't really don't. If you want some counsel, you can ask one of the pastors. I think you know. Well, I want to put on the brakes. What's really cool as I end is that the joy the Bible speaks of, this deep sense of well-being in our soul, rooted in the fact that God is good, gracious, and glorious, and for me all the time, is this is not something for a subset of Christians. You know, you got to be in the faith a certain amount of years. You know, you got to have a certain economic level. You know, you got to have the original Greek and the original Hebrew. You know, you... You got to be, none of that, none of that. There's no qualifiers except your disqualifier. This joy that Mary sings of and reflects is for all who will trust in Christ, even when you don't have all your questions answered. For all who have the right perspective that this is not all that there is and it's going to blow you away when the reversal happens. And for all, who actively hunger after God more than anything else. Now remember, I said this idea of magnifying and rejoicing and glorifying and enjoying are not two separate things. So what's the connection between glorifying God and rejoicing in him, enjoying him? 
It's, it's really quite simple. It's really quite simple. It's this. We, we praise what we enjoy most, right? Isn't that true? We simply pray what we enjoy most. Nobody fumbles for words of adulation and description and adoration for what their favorite food is. Do you struggle with that? Well, I don't know what I would say about my favorite food. I don't have a favorite food. Yes, you do. Nobody struggles and fumbles for words of adoration for your favorite team, your favorite movie, or activity. They flow out of that joy in that thing. As Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So no wonder, and this was the call to worship this morning, no less than two times in one short verse, we are commanded, rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice. God commands that for his glory and for our ultimate good. So I end with Mary's words, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Trust, perspective, and hunger the pathway to joy purchased for us by Christ. If you are not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, I would encourage you not to leave this place without being a Christian. You don't get become a Christian by being baptized or having somebody make some kind of gesture over you. You become a Christian by saying, Lord, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I understand that my sin deserves and incurs your judgment but I thank you that Jesus came in the world to pay my price on the cross and rose again to prove it, and I want to turn from my sin and trust and follow you. He would save you. It's not the, there's no formula. It's turning to Christ. And there'll be a pastor in the back of the auditorium for you to get counsel. And if you're a believer and you say, you know what, I have not been pressing into my birthright of joy. Again, somebody can pray with you about this matter. And if you're not led to do that, you can just pray with, to the Lord right now, and you can sing with all your heart, Right? This joy does not ignore other feelings, but it is there because God is good and gracious and glorious and for you all the time in both good times and bad times.